0: Hello and welcome to New Books in Intellectual History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Alexandra Bed, a host of the channel, and I have the great delight today of being joined by Edward Jones Corredera to discuss his new book, The Diplomatic Enlightenment, Spain, Europe, and the Age of Speculation, published by Brill in 2021. Ed, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks, Alexandra. Thanks for having me.
0: Ed, we'd really love to begin by hearing a little bit about you. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and how you reached the topic of the diplomatic enlightenment?
1: Um, yes, yeah, so I, I mean, I've listened to a few of these interviews, and, and, and a lot of people trace the, the research back to kind of undergrads and, and, and a kind of inspirational teacher. I think um, I trace my story back a little bit to my upbringing. So I was born and raised in, in, in Madrid, in Spain and um, my father's english and my mother's spanish and i was frequently surprised by how the two sides of the family understood um the culture of the other side and uh in a sense (laughs) there's a way in which you can read me trying to find the divergence the origins of that divergence between uh, the british industrial revolution and then what happened to spain in the 18th and 19th centuries uh back to uh back to the study of the of the enlightenment um so i think i was always trying to show that actually the two cultures were more alike than than it seemed and uh i think that definitely drove uh me in studying uh, this kind of thing and i i think i was also quite um aware of uh how different national historiographies and and different kind of national self-perceptions can be um and how there's a need to kind of uh critique and 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 approach um both sides with with a kind of critical gaze. so uh, yeah i think i think that's kind of where where it came from um yeah, I'm not sure I have much more, to my friend.
0: To no, I think it's brilliant. I, I, it's always lovely to hear when there's a kind of a personal connection to to history, because I think ultimately that's what drives so many historians and people who are interested yeah. in history to really take up these subjects um, with with great gusto. And I I think that that's a very kind of positive way to get into it. Um, but let's pick up then a little bit on these these kind of national differences, because that's something that really is, is fundamental to, to shaping the book a little bit. And Spain, as, as many people know, quite often takes a backseat um, in Enlightenment histories or history of the Enlightenment. Um, so I was wondering if maybe for those who are perhaps less familiar with the Spanish case, whether you could perhaps tell us a little bit about some of the ways in which the Spanish Enlightenment has been characterized, um, uh, especially maybe throughout the 19th kind of early 20th centuries and maybe some of the problems that have come out of this characterization or, or dare we even say tropes um, of the Spanish Enlightenment and that maybe raise some problems for those like yourself who were studying this period?
1: Yeah that's a very good question and it's, it's never easy to um, cover two centuries of bibliography on a specific topic while understanding the limits of your own view of it as informed by present-day debates. Um, one of the things that I argue in the book is that by the time that nineteenth, uh, particularly early, early 19th century, Spanish philosophers start to think about the, the Enlightenment, they've already kind of embraced a package of Enlightenment as defined by very mature Enlightenment, particularly French Enlightenment works that presume the existence of a kind of logic where the Enlightenment need, leads to the nation and the kind of modern nation state. Um, and the Spanish have this problem that they clearly have a nation state because someone has beaten Napoleon famously, and this is a kind of the the, the myth of the nation upon which a lot of the uh, politics of the time is built on. Um, but, but, but at the same time, they can't seem to find the Enlightenment and everything around them points to the fact that Spain remains an agrarian, um, largely undereducated, largely underindustrialized territory with um, what seems like an inevitable imperial crisis. Um, So they try to kind of figure out how they can then enlighten this nation that has come about somewhat organically um, and a lot of the progressive movements that emerged in the 19th century don't even really bother so much to study whether there was an enlightenment, but rather just try to implement it. So they see themselves as implementing in a kind of delayed way what's already happened in other countries, uh, particularly Britain and and, and France. So... um, And by the time you get to the 20th century, really, uh, a lot of the historiography that emerges outside of Spain on the topic of the Enlightenment is trying to explain the genealogy of the um, Francisco Franco uh, dictatorship, um, which makes complete sense, but leads to a view of the 18th century as, as, as a kind of era of obscurity and fanaticism where the Inquisition was quite dominant and where kings uh, kind of followed these um, evil uh, queens, and there's a very kind of misogynistic strain in, in the way that queens like uh, Elizabeth Foynese were seen at the, at the time. Um, and then what we get with the advent of democracy in Spain is uh, the maturation of a kind of view of the Enlightenment in Spain as being kind of a moderate Catholic uh, form of enlightenment that comes about towards the end of the century um, that, that reads the classics uh, and engages with them critically, but that uh, embraces them in a way that is perhaps Atlanticist. And in that in that sense is interesting because it leads to different views of cosmopolitanism and different views of... Um, spain's role in europe um but it doesn't go much farther than that and in a sense there's a number of there's there's a pursuit i think of trying to find a of trying to find a figure like um bentham and trying to find a spanish thinker that is somehow uh of that rank or that stature so people like Gaspar um uh, and um and um, uh, well, Pedro Rodríguez de campomanes is, is a kind of uh, um, pursuit for the, the kind of genius of the of the 18th century in Spain, which means that a lot of the archival work, um, I think, doesn't really get get done because because it's so self-evident that there wasn't an, an Enlightenment that um, that there's no need to kind of to question that. So my uh, um, my effort in the book, and in a sense, what I was trying to say was i, I even if you disagree with my interpretation let's agree to go back to the archives and and look at what actually happened rather than take these historiographical readings for granted and just projecting them across a hundred a hundred years and uh, we can talk a little bit about some of the uh implications that um, or of so the sedimentary kind of layers that still remain in the uh, kind of modern interpretation of the Enlightenment today, if, if you would like.
0: Yeah, and it, it very much feels from the book that, you know, Spain and kind of the Spanish Enlightenment has fallen victim to, to so much of this comparative Enlightenment um, approach that takes place within this historiography. Um but you know what you do so successfully is then you take this backdrop that you've just um, you've just framed for us, and then you reframe the enlightenment in Spain as as what you call then this diplomatic enlightenment. This lovely title of the book. So I'm wondering then, before we kind of dig into what that, that means and whether we talk about that as a kind of conceptual framework or something like that, is to actually maybe just outline a little bit of, well, what's actually happening in Spain at this time that renders diplomacy as such a vital part of its political and intellectual climate, perhaps more so than in other, especially European nations at this time?
1: Yes, I've been thinking a lot about this in part because I I wasn't expecting people to focus so much on the title, <laughs>
0: um,
1: because I, I as we'll talk about later I do qualify what I what I mean by it, um, but um, when you give it that much prominence in a book, uh, uh, it it does seem to kind of catch people's attention. So so people have tried to ask what 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 that means. I. I think what's interesting is if you think about the, the literature in Spain and, and kind of composite monarchies, or even the idea of a polycentric monarchy, there's always this kind of constant negotiation across territories of, of power, um, with different agents, uh, with different interests, and even with kind of competing um, state interests within the context of the Habsburg crown. Um, And so this is really an empire that that relies on on diplomacy. If you think about Charles V in Spain, Charles I, or if you think about Philip II, I mean a lot of these successes are um, the silk glove of, of diplomacy, kind of covering up the the iron fist of, of of Spanish power. But the diplomacy is not performative. I mean, it really kind of plays a role, and it, and it's really instrumental to the preservation of And the shaping of Spanish power in Europe, and so what happens is in in the Treaty of Utrecht, the War of Succession, and the Treaty of Utrecht. So we're talking about 1700 to 1714, is that uh, Spain is made aware that its diplomacy, uh, which once in a sense shaped much of European political vest now carries no weight. So its representation of the Congress is, is, is minimal. And in a sense, um, this is made particularly clear in um, John Shoblin's recent, recent book, Trading with the Enemy. Um, there really is a sense that the, the, the Spain is a problem to be managed. It's an object of, of speculation. And the main thing is to keep it uh, away from the hands of a singular king um and to kind of make sure that uh its its resources and its territories are split up in a way that means that this kind of fear of universal monarchy um is is, is kind of banished and that the balance of power can be um uh, established in, in in europe and so you know, uh, kind of, there's a kind of of crisis of political consciousness, if you want to put it in those terms, where this kind of um, genealogy of power all of a sudden is kind of truncated, and and the Spanish kind of realized that that there's a kind of crisis of of diplomacy, which is a kind of vehicle, traditional vehicle of Spanish power. And so what I try to argue in the book is that um, this crisis then leads to a kind of uh, intellectual regeneration that tries to adapt to to the new world of, of 18th century diplomacy.
0: I like this idea of the difference between the performative diplomacy and the diplomacy that's kind of the nuts and bolts of the functioning um, of the empire, but we'll come to that in a moment. Um, <laughs> something that I wanted to pick up on um, kind of before we talk about these kind of larger intellectual themes, um, but I suppose very much fits into that anyway, is, is coming back to, to what you were saying about, about going back to the archive and um you know, a really fascinating dimension of your book is is its its focus on a particular source type, um, which is almanacs, um, and this is certainly not a form of of text, something like the treatise or the encyclopedia that we so commonly associate with the spread of enlightenment ideas. And so I was wondering if you might kind of tell us a bit about the role that they were playing in this diplomatic enlightenment. So coming back to this idea of diplomacy and also perhaps how they were differing a bit from almanacs in other parts of Europe, because they seem to play quite a different role um, to the almanac that we particularly know, for example, um, in, in England at that time.
1: Yes. So this was kind of my favorite part of the book. And uh and I think that that would be kind of most fun to write. And it's the uh, <laughs> it's also the maddest bit, and I'm surprised that uh, that people people also seem to to get it. Um I think it it, it connects exactly with kind of where, where where we left it off with the with the last question in the sense that uh, by seventeen fourteen, imagine in the future, the political future of Spain is incredibly difficult. You have a French uh, uh prince is now the king when when france has been spain's main enemy for for a century um you have uh the consulados which is the kind of uh overseas and and also local but uh particularly the overseas consulados really kind of pushing back against the new boyhood crown and the reforms and and really kind of entrenching some of those uh illicit commercial uh, interactions that they've created with um, British and Dutch uh, companies and and powers uh, during the Wars of Succession to kind of compensate for the for the loss or the weakening of some of those imperial circuits that that don't really thrive during the war, um, and uh, even territorially there's this question of uh, where does Spain kind of end and and what are the, the new limits and, and during the war of Spanish succession it's kind of fear that that actually will almost be wiped out of, of Europe some some compare it to, to Troy and, and, and want to kind of leave behind a kind of testament to to this uh, empire. So it it really is really difficult to imagine the future in <laughs> of Spain and in Spain at the time. And I was fortunate enough while doing the PhD to um, get funding from the DAD Cambridge Hub um, uh, uh, which is managed by uh, Christopher Clark and Chris Young um, to do a series of workshops on Koselik on the global legacies of Reinhard Koselik and so fortunately I had people who knew and and kind of understood this kind of relationship between time and power kind of talking to me about these things while I was looking through some of these sources and almanacs. and in the end um, my interpretation, my reading of these almanacs is that they they combine. They become incredibly popular in Spain, I should say. Um, and they they the kind of the main author of, of these almanacs is the autor de who is is truly. I mean, he he publishes his bestsellers in, in the Spanish context. uh and and um, and. They're mostly kind of alien writings, but there's also kind of Baroque criticisms of of power. And the main thing is that they're, they're incredibly popular and they, they mix the kind of the quotidian uh, prediction about the future that you see in traditional almanacs with a kind of uh, increasingly critical political edge that really kind of gets taken up by uh, other authors who realize that th- this medium of information is an incredibly popular one. And so, use it to kind of disseminate choreographic, economic, and political information, even kind of historical information, with with the explicit uh, reference in 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 the text to kind of say, you know, this is to educate you and to educate the reader, so that, um, you know, so that you know what happened, and you can kind of, uh, uh, if not predict, at least be ready for certain events that may that may come, and um, there's kind of this proliferation of learned almanacs that, that that flows from this period of crisis when it becomes incredibly incredibly difficult to to predict the future and I have to say i mean i this is maybe anachronistic but I do definitely think that um, there's a connection with forms of information today to do with threads so I'm thinking of kind of Instagram and Facebook and and uh, a lot of these platforms, where the format is the same, and kind of ridiculous, very serious political, and and kind of boring stuff, is all presented in the same format. And one of the issues we're having today is precisely that these kind of platforms don't differentiate between between these, um, you know, between fake news and real news, and between kind of heavy news and and uh, Less heavy news. I mean, maybe there's no need to be so kind of draconian about it. There's also kind of something nice about a medium that combines things and where you can just kind of scroll and scroll and scroll. So, so I think the kind of view of these almanacs is also responding is is responding to a change in the public sphere today. And um, I think that the almanacs have a lot to tell us about um, uh, kind of the 21st century type of um, medium by which we learn about about the world today. Sorry, I haven't answered your point about how they differ from other countries, but just briefly, um, they, I mean, one interesting thing is compared to Benjamin Franklin's Poor Richard's Almanac, um, which is kind of seen as, as, as planting the seeds of proto um, independentist kind of thought um, in the colonies. And, but by and large, yeah. I mean, I I, uh, I think from my reading in in the rest of Europe, the the use of is a lot more bland and mundane. And what we see in Spain probably has to do with the legacy of the Baroque and uh, a very strong culture of the picturesque that's kind of turned on its head, so that the gaze that we get is not um, uh, the rich audience kind of thinking of the world through the through the kind of gaze of the, of the imagined invented poor but rather an attempt to to really introduce uh, people of all classes to um, the world of the courts and and the world of diplomacy
0: it really i mean it's such a fascinating part of the book i must admit i was really engaged at this point <laughs> not that i wasn't throughout the rest of the book but this i mean the almanacs are, are particularly um Unique in you know, in that way, and I was wondering, you know, do do you have? I realize that you know this, this obviously isn't the focus of of your research, but you know, there's a there's. Do we have an idea of who the actual readers were of the almanacs? You know, the, the kind of the spread, because I mean, it really does make a huge difference. You know, if this really is a a huge vehicle for kind of um, enlightening the populace, which is such a, a kind of popular idea at that time.
1: That's right. Yeah. No. I mean that that would be the next step, and I very much hope that that people will take up this, this point and, and investigate it because absolutely, I mean, I, I looked into how these writers were um, thinking about it. Interestingly, there is a, a, a source from the time that expresses surprise at the very popularity of, of the media and does the, the maths basically and says, actually, if, if, if we look at the number of sales, we we actually cannot just say that, that 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 this is a kind of source for ignorant people. Actually, a number of people who who can read and write and who are uh, capable of this kind of how they this this particular source kind of interprets it, um, who are educated basically are interested in in this medium, going on the basis of the sales. So the next step absolutely would be to look at the diffusion of of, of these throughout um, the peninsula. And um, we can, of course, talk about the point I tried to make with, with the contrast um, with the Spanish Atlantic and Pacific, where the medium isn't as popular.
0: And you've anticipated where I wanted to go <laughs> next, which is which is to really pick up on this this Atlantic um, connection. And you know, you're not just talking about domestic concerns, a huge part of the book is thinking about Spain's vast empire. And part of this discussion examines the growth of political economy and especially looking at arguments which are supporting what you call um, a corporate model of empire, in which empire is being reframed in terms of investment and in terms of profit. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about why this corporate model, well, firstly, what, what is this corporate model, I suppose, of <laughs> empire? And why is it seen as being particularly beneficial? Because it has a very political dimension as well as an economic one. Um, and how this then went on to kind of affect what was this existing, fairly long-standing by that time, Spanish colonial system?
1: Yeah, no, that's a great question. I I actually was asked about this recently in relation to Ducomas and the idea of Lucomath, someone said in a in a book that that focuses so much on, on political economy. You never mention this idea of, of, of math and, um, instinctively, uh, the answer came out of me before I could even think about it. And it was that, uh, actually commas and speculation are two different things. And I think that's very clear in, in, in the book. Um, even if, even if the difference is never made explicit, but, um, yeah, I mean, what, what I think we see is, is a kind of acceptance on behalf of a lot of Spanish officials that, uh, in a sense, a lot of the Northern European um, corporate ventures have, if not replaced, really challenged Iberian models. And above all, really fostered cooperation with uh, a lot of the elites in, in the Americas and, and in the Philippines. Um, so it's not just a kind of theoretical challenge; it's it's, it's a very practical one. And um, the question of corp- kind of the the corporations and the Spanish Empire is very complicated because, in a sense, the the, the Spanish Empire is always about um, corporate interests from the beginning in terms of the Cortes and things like that. But my my leaning into kind of collapsing the, the difference between Northern European companies and this kind of Iberian corporate model um, was a kind of critique of a, of a strand of uh, Atlanticist uh, kind of historiography that, that kind of separated the British and the Spanish empires where, whereby the British empire was an empire of, of trade um, with the kind of seeds of proto-democratic thought being embedded in something like the Virginia Company and uh and then the Spanish Empire has been one made up of patronage, of religion, and above all of law. So law then serving as kind of the space of contestation of power for the contestation of power and for the for the kind of implementation of power. And and, and I mean, this is a, going off on a tangent, but but I think uh there's almost a kind of legal modernity that's been built around this this model now in the field of Iberian and particularly Spanish studies, where People have really embraced this idea that, uh, in a sense, a lot of what we would today would call modernity, a lot of the pursuit of certain values of accountability of enlightenment. I mean, if you think of you know, like Bianca Bremos, um, The Enlightenment on Trial, the idea is that, you know, the the, the the legal structures really provide spaces to seek justice from below and empower agency uh, of, of uh, everyone's agency, really, from, from below. And, and there's work. done now by Tony years ago and others on on kind of this idea of petitions um so so basically yeah this idea of 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 seeking justice uh seeking progress seeking uh a community if not if not kind of the seeds of the of the nation through legal means i think um there's a lot there's a lot to say uh, I mean, there's a lot of merit there, and I think a lot of really interesting stuff is coming out. But sometimes I miss the economics of of it, and I miss the. the uh, I I wonder whether it's worth just remembering that the political economy is in the Northern European uh, invention or domain, in a sense, and that and that and that, and I think corporations, to go back to that point, really emphasise that because they sit precisely at the crossroads between law and 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 economics, if if we can use this kind of broad. Terms of and so that that was kind of the idea with with kind of emphasizing the BDP corporations. And yes, uh, effectively, we see um, mm-hmm. Spanish visions of corporations as being uh, political mechanisms more than commercial ones. So there's never an emphasis on how this company is going to make X amount of money. Usually it's, how is this, it's, it's more about how is this company going to um, remedy... A lack of accountability on the ground um a kind of corrupt viceroy how would it serve to check um his rule um if the king as as in the case of philip v is um you know particularly arbitrary and and kind of um bellicose and 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 engaged in kind of revanchism how can corporations be used to kind of check that that power and create kind of pockets of investment that could safeguard the 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 well-being of the people um, while these kind of imperial, imperial fantasies and, and, and adventures are kind of happening, at the at the same time, and I think one of the most interesting findings was this um, um, Peruvian scheme to kind of send the polyglot and a minor um, to the kind of and kind of grand tour of Europe to um, to learn about uh, the, the the improvements in the science of mining that have happened in the in the last century, in which the text accuses the Spanish crown of, of kind of keeping from the Americas and, and kind of stalling the development of this modern science in, in the Americas.
0: It all feels was kind of strangely contemporary, doesn't it? This idea of <laughs> of, of corporations and um, uh, and kind of speculation somehow having a, a kind of political check, um, but but that's probably something that we shouldn't shouldn't go down right now. But um, so obviously, then you know this this kind of outlook to this kind of corporate model of empire and this colonial attitude more generally isn't universally accepted. I think you know. That's um, probably not, not a difficult uh, thing to imagine. And you move then in the book to kind of discuss some of the backlash to a lot of these ideas that take place in the Spanish colonies, which is a really, a really fascinating juncture in the book. And you focus above all here on, on Venezuela. And I was wondering if you might just tell us a bit about what happened in this specific scenario and actually some of the repercussions that this, this kind of backlash, these, uh, this kind of confrontation almost had for the Spanish empire.
1: Yeah, so um, conceptually this is quite difficult, and I didn't really elaborate it um, or elaborate on it in the book. But effectively, the way that the Spanish Empire is understood uh, is, is, is through this idea of kind of pactismo, um, whereby there's a kind of agreement between the, the king and subject, and and it's a kind of contractual understanding. Uh, which carries its set of kind of uh, responsibilities and, and obligations on both sides. And I think what happens is that uh, corporations introduce a different, uh, particularly joint stock or even regulated uh, companies, they introduce a different relationship between uh, the king and the subject because all of a sudden there's a kind of something in between that. And ultimately, companies pursue the, their own profits. Um, whether they can kind of catalyze the growth of trade or channel um, trade towards different areas of the empire which is how the advocates of these companies see them uh, and defend their advantages that's that's one thing but there's there's no denying that they kind of get in the way of existing um economic relationships which in the case of the Caracas company was very much the the goal to kind of disrupt some of the connections between the dutch west india company and the uh, local elites and also um, uh, the company of uh, freed blacks in um, in Caracas, and so what happens is that following the the, the War of Jenkins' Ear, um, the Caracas company tries to regain some of the um, kind of economic weight that it had in the in the region, but during the war a lot of the uh, local merchants have kind of um, Recovered a lot of the uh, economic uh, links that they had with uh, um, Caracas and and um, and uh, the, the kind of Dutch Dutch merchants, and so this leads to a bubbling tension that that's that there really since the Caracas company is, is founded, but which really explodes in 1749 when there's a, a, a kind of massive riot in in, in Caracas against the the company, and immediately this question of where 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 does the company end and and where does the kind of crown begin, uh, emerges right because in a sense it's a royal it's a royal company so it's sponsored by the by the king, but at the same time the king is meant to provide for the subjects so and not not for a company, and so it was fascinating reading about the Spanish uh, kind of in the Council of Indies. Uh, trying to make sense of the, the protest on the ground, because there's a real fear that that it will lead to a kind of dominant effect, this protest, and that it will then go to Cuba because the Havana company is uh, equally um, popular among some sectors of the um, uh, um, kind of commercial elite, although it has to be said that the Havana company is, is different because it actually benefits the um, the local elites. And so there's this kind of fear that, 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 that it will lead to... Um, to the collapse of the empire, and it will lead to kind of a wave of, of independence. And there's a there's an incredible quote, actually, um, by one of the authors, I would say we to conclude the introduction of the book with, um, you know, where the author basically says, people are really suffering in, in the Indies, and if they see that uh, some can truly rebel against the king, they will be inspired by that model, and they'll see that you really can't, um, project your authority across this much this much distance and, and, and space so yeah basically this kind of um, a, a attempt to reinforce some of these corporate elements of of, of the empire um, that grants more authority to to the crown um, leads to a kind of huge debate on what it means to be a subject in the spanish empire what it means to uh, to 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 participate in commercial activities in the Spanish Empire, and in the end, it leads to an entrenchment of those who of the positions of those who believe that free trade is better than than um, one a type of commerce that relies on on joint stock companies or regulated companies, and and those who advocate for um, for companies. So so in the end, the actual institutional arrangement is interesting. Um, the result after all of this. Revolt because uh, the the company is actually given a little bit more authority on the ground, but it's also institutionalized authority. So, so it kind of it's meant to kind of be more. The directors are meant to be in dialogue with um, the other political authorities, more traditional political authorities on the on the ground.
0: And something that I think that example also does is really draw attention to. The role of individuals within this entire framework that you're talking about, and throughout the book more generally, because it's not just the abstract kind of level of state and government or corporations or, or kind of larger groups, but it's also the the machination, machination, sorry, of, of the individuals who are part of these, um, and that's something that I wanted to kind of move to talk about because obviously it's it's very difficult to talk about diplomacy um, and the diplomatic enlightenment without talking about those who are actually doing diplomacy, so not just those who are diplomats per se, and with title, but, you know, those who are involved in the various multifaceted processes of diplomacy. So I'm, I was wondering if you might kind of give listeners, I don't know, maybe a couple of examples or just, just a kind of an, an insight into who maybe some of these figures are, who become these diplomatic players, whether it's a kind of f- more formal or informal role.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's that's a very that's a really good point um i i i mean i play around with the idea of uh, diplomats a lot in the in the book in that uh, if you think of someone like pombal de marques pombal in uh, in portugal he really kind of makes his career by by being a, a diplomat in in london and then in austria um if you think of someone like the Marquis the, the Johnson, so, um he's very keen on, on on kind of thinking about french foreign policy and, and some bf schemes and on all of these things um i something I'm, I'm working on a, <laughs> in a piece in a volume one about <laughs> contributing uh to this too precisely on kind of um in a sense relaunching some of the stuff that the scott Worked on uh, some time ago on on the relationship between between diplomacy and um, and enlightenment and and a kind of topology of of um, yeah the the precisely these these agents who who really make it quite difficult to to kind of call them diplomats if we think of people like Goethe um, a number of scholars more recently have have kind of said what what do we do with some of these enlightenment figures who also serve as diplomats um uh and, and where does the kind of traditional republic of, le- of letters and um uh, end and and um and where does the um and where and where do these diplomatic spaces end. So anyway, that that's just kind of theoretical rambling, but, but in terms of the, the actual examples, um yeah, I mean in, in chapter five we, we find uh the example of a particularly unfortunate man called um Rafael de Macanaz, who, um who is instrumental in the early decades of, of Bourbon rule, and is incredibly stubborn and uh, is very opinionated and, and writes a lot, a lot on on, on kind of different schemes of, of reform, and um, gets into trouble for trying to curtail some of the powers of the Inquisition, and so is banished. Um, but from abroad as uh, as is the case with many, many different um, officials who are banished, um, for instance, like the Jesuits after the 16, uh, 1767 expulsion, uh, sixty-eight expulsion. Sorry, um, they they actually um, they continue to to write and continue to act in uh, in the service of the um, of the Spanish Crown, and it's very difficult to categorise these people. We they kind of disappear for a bit and they keep reading and writing. And then they serve as spies, and then they send skilled artisans to Spain on kind of corporate ventures to set up specific types of manufacturing and develop, um, say, for instance, the, the the kind of the clock uh, or watch industry. And uh, then they get sent as envoys to congresses, and then they kind of fade back again. And anyway, so so one of the most interesting examples is precisely this this one of Maganat, who. Um, at this point he's in his 70s and and he's asked to go to uh, the Congress of Breda, which isn't a particularly significant Congress in the scheme of things that happens in the middle of kind of the war of Austrian succession and the the war of Jenkins here Um, and he has the exact opposite worldview of the minister who's sent him there so the minister um, is trying to create this kind of plan of uh, equilibrium in Europe and and kind of make Spain into an arbitrary Europe um, through diplomatic negotiation and this Mackin elderly official is 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 basically entirely the with of the idea of, of diplomacy and so he says you know instead of looking at what this that empire is doing and trying to kind of negotiate and, and compromise we should actually just close the empire have all kind of leading merchants come to us um, and set up their own manufacturing in the Americas, because that's really where they, they, they need to do their trade. And in that way, then control Europe. And so uh, one of the things I'm trying to do in this, in this chapter, in this volume, is to try to put together uh, this idea of, 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 yeah, I mean, I'm working on some of these methodological and, and maybe kind of theoretical aspects of what, what it tells us that these diplomats with such a rich life um, end up having the influence on policy that they they do have. What manuscript culture tells us about that, um, and and the trans the kind of transmission of information uh, and ideas from secret manuscripts um, to um, and I can't to to then published um, published works in print.
0: The secret manuscripts sound incredibly <laughs> enticing. I feel like every student will be zooming in to kind of hear about these. Um, but if we're if we're talking about individuals, you know, someone who I found really fascinating in the book um, is is Karvajal, who is a really key key player um, is towards the uh, kind of the latter half of, of your writing. I wonder if you might just tell us a bit more about him and how he he came to play such a fundamental intellectual and political role at this time
1: yeah so i mean carvajal is really the the protagonist of the book um he is a difficult figure to study he didn't leave uh all that much behind in terms of kind of works that can shed light on his theoretical uh, views of power but it did leave an extensive uh, correspondence and i've drawn on that extensively um So, Carvajal is uh, uh, a descendant of Henry the Navigator and is frequently described as being Portuguese and not Spanish um, by both uh, foreign and Spanish uh, contemporaries. And uh, he's born in Extremadura, which at the time, as Tamar has has shown, it was a kind of contested uh, frontier territory with, with Portugal and And his lineage um, uh, as Duke of Abrantes is is again to do with um, uh, a point in time when when Spain and Portugal were, were united so he kind of has this transnational uh, identity to himself which which is frequently explored in the literature on the seventeenth and sixteenth century i mean that 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 um, Story of of a united Iberia is quite common in in the mainstream literature on the kind of Spanish Golden Age and and seventeenth century literature, but by the eighteenth century it becomes a lot more diffuse And, and so Carvajal has this interesting dimension um, that, he's, that he's yeah, I mean he's born into this this, this very um, noble family and as uh, uh, kind of many aristocrats from the time uh, has a very traditional upbringing sent to um, to study law and um some philosophers uh, a number of a number of philosophers kind of remember one is specifically mayans who's a particularly important philosopher remembers recalls seeing his father, um and uh, recalls being quite impressed by his talent i mean this, this could also be a way of ingratiating himself when he does correspond with carol but um but I think it is significant that, that he recalls that, that specific episode in, in his life. And then uh, goes on to work at the Chancellery of Baja which traditionally would been a very important kind of uh, imperial uh, European uh, body. Um, but by that point, its, it's influence kind of faded. Uh, Baja is a fascinating uh, place to study in general in terms of early modern Spain because they have an insane amount of holidays and public festivities. And so the relationship with and the chancellor, in a sense, um, spearheads a lot of them, and is and is in charge of of kind of choreographing this this demonstration of of power. And um, it his experience there really shows you if you look at the debates that they had on a on a weekly basis, which were all kind of recorded in these insanely huge manuscripts, um, how how little they really cared about the the, the bourbon crown, those type of messages, the type of um, if not orders requests that were coming from from the king um, which they moved um, to fulfill very sluggishly and um, this 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 matters because Carvajal uh, never really has a very high high uh, kind of estimation of of the king and in fact believes that the Spanish crown is uh, belongs to the Habsburg uh, crown and not the, not the boyland And so, um, from this provincial setting, at this point is is 40 when he gets uh, chosen to uh, serve as a kind of uh, diplomatic envoy uh, at Dresden at the Imperial Diet uh, uh, in the 1740s. And that's where he really comes into contact with a lot, again, in a diplomatic context, with a lot of alternative views about where Spain fits in Europe. And really finds that I mean he actually says like, I feel uncomfortable lying about your claim to the throne, um, and uh, this is in the context where Philip V, the boy king of Spain, is trying to claim as his the Habsburg crown, um, which is a bit strange of a thing to do in the 1740s. But anyway, um, and so and so basically he has to write a kind of justification of of Philip's uh, claim to the Habsburg throne. And it's immediately rebuffed by an anonymous text that appears, which kind of mocks this kind of Spanish presumption to to still be a, a leading power in Europe and, and effectively goes to say, um, look, the only reason why, why Philip has um, control over Spain is because Europe decided it, so you're really in a position to to try to renegotiate the terms of, of your sovereignty. And I think that's quite an important episode for for Carajal because it really, I mean, it really reaffirms this view that that something has to be done, both to check Philip's power, but also to reframe Spain's Spain's actual power in Europe. And um, uh, a, uh, a few years after getting back from from the Congress, he he has a near death experience and he writes this kind of political testament where he articulates his view of of, uh, a model of arbitration of power in Europe that puts Spain at the center, uh, separates it from France, and then kind of, it's a kind of Habsburg crown redux, so it would be kind of um, Austria, Portugal, and Spain, but also including, um, very importantly, um, Britain. And so the idea is to have Britain and Spain work together. And there's this scheme to effectively use a a a um, a Philippine company, so a company for the Philippines, to um, use the regulation of silver from uh, the Pacific to Europe to effectively regulate um, European affairs. And the idea is that uh, all the participating states uh, will invest in this company, so they will have no incentive to lose that that money that they've invested and together will be so powerful that um, anyone trying to attack them will will fail yeah. and so it's quite a hard view of diplomacy that um, effectively just turns to money and says well if we can't trust diplomatic agreements we can definitely trust investment.
0: Scary thought. Um, <laughs> 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 oh, the idea today that we can trust investment, but um, but we'll, I'll keep my political views to myself. But um, it kind of it actually it ties in quite nicely to what to what you've just been saying. I, I was wondering if you might kind of thinking beyond the book a little bit here to, to reflect a bit on what actually your research is contributing with regards to kind of rethinking the sites of enlightenment. So we know about the salon, we know about all of these kind of traditional sites and spaces of enlightenment. Um, But I think what your book does is actually really challenge a lot of that. And we've already discussed in in our podcast today about um, the role of almanacs, but there are lots of other examples that you explore, things like um, the silver mines, for example, mines more generally, corporations, economic societies, and so forth, that I think could quite easily be argued or made a case for as being sites of enlightenment, um, as we might then talk about, you know, the different types of individuals and groups who become the enlightenment uh, figures as well. So I was just kind of interested to hear what, what you think um, your your book is kind of contributing to this discussion regarding the spaces and sites of enlightenment.
1: Yeah, I, I, I mean, I'd I love to get your thoughts on that, to be honest. I, I, I mean, so there is a kind of uh, bit in the book where you do get the somewhat um, traditional salon. So there's the Academia del Buen Gusto, which is managed by Jose de Zuniva y Castro. Um, who's a, a, a kind of aristocrat from from the time, and that that kind of connects the Spanish bureaucracy with the uh, Enlightenment, with the kind of more kind of French salon Enlightenment, and I think it's kind of in between. But no, I, I, like you say, I mean, I, this question of sites is is quite interesting, and um, in I mean, the, the, the diplomatic one is, is one maybe we, that we've already talked about a lot, but 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 I'm I was struck by um, the fact that um, we, we, yeah, we just forget that, that, that diplomatic settings were, were spaces for the exchange of, of ideas, and I think that diplomats have are, are quite interesting in, in themselves. And I'll, I'll kind of move away from, from diplomats, but um, in a second, but I, I, I think it's worth kind of just stopping there and thinking about them because the, the diplomats are interesting as thinkers because they don't have to be consistent. They can gather and cross-reference sources. A lot of the material they leave behind is not well archived, and a, a lot of the ideas and a lot of the kind of working through um, what we would call maybe political thinking is is done in letters and is often very piecemeal. And you only really see the progress in the way that they change about the way that they think it, if you if you follow their, their correspondence. So. Um, yeah, I mean, thinking about the, the mundane administrators, um, which other regional literatures do, uh, thinking of something like, you know, Cameralism, uh, I think is an important uh, aspect of the book, and I would hope that the more people would do that. And yeah, I mean, in terms of the the site, especially in in the context of, of Peru, and um, again, not to go back to it, but the, but the diplomatic role of the, uh, of the Generative intellectual role of diplomacy in the in the revolutionary period. Also, Um, I I don't really have anything very developed to say, other than just to say that it's just worth investigating the sources without thinking too much about historiographical um, uh, prejudices over uh, what type of information you expect to to find there, and really to approach the archive obviously with a with a critical eye about the, the voices that aren't being listened to there. But 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 not to um uh, assume that things might not be um, debated or um, recorded in a specific site. That was very rambly, but um <laughs> I think that's kind of uh yeah, I think that's kind of the main main things I have to say about the sites, I think.
0: And then you bring the book to a close by by kind of closing and bringing the end to the Spanish Enlightenment, and you offer here a, a number of broader conclusions. And among them, you you offer some reflections on the relationship between diplomacy and reform, um, which we've somewhat touched upon. But more precisely, you really talk about um, the relationship between diplomatic failure and reform. I was wondering if you might tell us a little bit about why this particular dynamic is is such an important consideration and maybe how it alters some of those existing preconceptions about the Spanish Enlightenment that you so kindly outlined at the beginning of our discussion.
1: Yeah, I think, I think the idea of failure is fascinating. And uh, even though in the Spanish literature, particularly in the 19th and 20th century, a lot of modernism is a kind of riffing on uh, uh, on a kind of failed modernity, actually, uh, there's a very exciting project in in, in Madrid happening uh, called Failure. I think Failure 2020 or something, and and it and it does try to explore actually what what we mean by by failure, um, and I would hope that more people would would interrogate that. Uh, I think again attached to the black legend, there's this kind of sense of inevitability about failure, whereas I I see it as a kind of galvanizing force, at least for these. For these thinkers, where um, there's a nice metaphor uh, that I quite like, which is um, the idea of board games and seeing failure as a kind of, you know, you've lost the game, but we're playing another game, and um, thinking about sociability and uh, and and speculation and. A lot of these values that emerged in, in the 18th century, as, um, as 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 dealing with failures, which were incredibly common in in economic life in 18th century Europe and throughout the world, and continuing to be so in in kind of the modern economy, and as uh, that not being really the end, but but a kind of uh, yeah a, a galvanising intellectual. For, for for thought and and to reconsider the angles and to think about the way you're playing differently and thinking about the type of speculation uh, that you're making and here I'm using it to kind of a different way this idea of speculation um, and yeah so so uh, I guess thinking about how different people throughout history have, have thought about failure kind of what what did they talk about when they talked about failure would be would be an interesting way of um, analysing this phenomenon in different in different contexts, particularly now that uh, especially in the, in the modern world, this idea of kind of failure is, is now uh, taking on a a new new meaning in the kind of context of climate change and and the way we've approached industrial progress um, and that model of economic growth.
0: Ed, I think we'd better leave something for people to read and buy the book um, to, to kind of to think about. So um, as we draw to a close, um, I was wondering if you might tell us a little bit about what you're currently working on and, and where the diplomatic enlightenment has, has led you to or is leading you to in the future.
1: Yeah, so uh, the next step is to look at the question of debt, um, for the question of debt and peace. Uh, Runs throughout the um, it's kind of a running thread throughout the throughout the book, and I'm very interested now. So I have a a second uh, book project which uh, will be coming out. It's recently been accepted by reviewers for publication, and will be coming out whenever I get around to writing it on um, the relationship between external debt and the pursuit of um, Latin American nationhood and independence. Um and um there again, if we think of the work of David Armitage, um and, and many others, um, there is a real awareness that actually the you know the, the, the pursuit of constitutional nationhood was a diplomatic process. And as an example of the book in the book of Francisco de Miranda, who who who's kind of the original uh revolutionary leader of, of Venezuela, uh um where he, you know, he desperately tries to have his equivalent of a constitution validated by a foreign, a, a, a significant enough foreign leader. In his case, he really wants to Pitt to 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 accept it, and um, and you really see the challenges and 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 the kind of the need to create incentives for others to accept a change in the in the kind of geopolitical system by giving you independence that may not help them, and um there the relationship between finance and sovereignty takes on a a very interesting dynamic through um this idea of debt and and um basically having to incur in in pretty difficult debt in order to finance uh independence and and then kind of secure that independence from from the Spanish
0: Empire. Well, I look forward to reading it in the near future. Um, the book is The Diplomatic Enlightenment Spain, Europe, and the Age of Speculation, published by Brill in 2021. Ed, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. It's been a fascinating conversation.
1: Thank you, Aikon.